wanted to start out just with a heads up that we're going to spend a little extra time on the review and introduction this morning because the whole last page of your handout is not in the message. So you have a three-page handout today. And also, again, I didn't mess with the margins, so it's really short. So we're going to take time to review, and then you'll kind of know our, our progress in terms of where we are on that handout. But I wanted to start out just by asking you the question, um, what are we doing? Why are, why are we here? What is this? We're asking the question, how should we worship? Because uh, we, I don't know how you would have answered that question prior. I don't know. I trust you'd answer it now. Well, I'm, I'm here to worship. I'm not here to talk with my friends. I'm not even here to fellowship with my friends. Not ultimately. I'm here to worship. And so we've been asking, if that's what we're here for, how should we do it? It's kind of just saying, okay, back to the basics, back to the fundamentals. And sometimes we get so far along in our Christian uh, practice, corporately and individually, that we cease to ask questions. We just do what we do. And so we've been asking this question, and we started out in the introduction asking, what is worship? And worship is everything that I owe to God. What, what do you owe to God? Well, everything. And then what is everything? Well, you can go through, right? It's, it's from the moment you get up to the moment you go to bed, and probably in some way, even while you're sleeping. I don't know. You, you owe him everything. And so worship, Paul says, is all that we do. That would be internal worship. Uh, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Uh, Paul said... Uh, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, that you offer up your whole lives, your bodies, as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, because this is your reasonable service of worship. So that's internal worship, that's all of your life, that's common to every day. But then the Bible speaks of what we call external worship, and that's an act that is worship, whether you like it or not, You know, it's an act of worship because God said it is. So when I pray, whether I pray to an idol or pray with a bad heart to the true God or pray with a clean heart to the true God, every time it's worship whether I like it or not. Now some of you, a a few of you, um, I was really happy about this because you said, well, I don't know, those categories, are those biblical categories? Those don't sound like biblical names. And you're so used to me preaching through a text of scripture that when I start preaching more systematically and I use a phrase like internal worship versus external worship, we start to be like, is that biblical? And I'm so excited that you asked that question. This is wonderful. And now let me assure you that though the language is not, what it reflects is. And so, so that's, what we, that's what we need to see. And you be the Bereans and search that out for yourself. Um, but external worship is holy. That's, it's set apart. It's not common. Now, if we take external worship, the acts of worship, um, whether my heart's there or not, 
I'm still worshiping. It's just bad worship or good worship. Okay? If we take external worship, we can divide that up into two categories. There's private ex- Oh. Oh, sorry. Yeah, you, sorry, I've been, I've been helping all the other previous PowerPoint people along. So let's go through quickly. Heart of worship and internal worship, external worship, and there we are. Okay, sorry about that, Tom. I'll, I'll do better. Private external worship is your worshiping at home, the hour of prayer, the posture of prayer. You're, maybe you're down on your knees. Maybe you raise your hands. Paul talks about the posture of prayer. But then there's a special, next slide, external temple worship, where now we gather together on a specific day at a specific time as the stones in the temple to worship. And this refutes the egalitarian error of our day that says all times are alike, right? All times are equally sacred, are equally holy. And um, and in one sense we could say that, and in another sense we say no. This is holy. This is holy. This is set apart in a way that the rest of your life is not. This is doubly holy. Because it's external worship and it's external temple worship. Okay. Now, we moved then, with these categories in mind, to primeval worship, where we looked at Cain and Abel and Seth's line and Noah. And maybe you're remembering this, and we saw that what is worship? It is to call upon the name of the Lord. So what do we gather here to do every week? Call upon his name. To invoke his name in prayer. And we saw that was connected with an altar and offerings on the altar. And we looked specifically at the distinction between natural worship and religious worship. Natural worship just tells us that every single person driving by on 47 outside right now knows that they are obligated to pray to God and to call upon his name. But no one does because of sin. And so what we need God to do is to reveal to us his worship. We need him to reveal to us the name upon which we are to call and tell us how to do that so it's acceptable to him. Because we're all sinners, Whatever we bring to God is now tainted and comes from sinful hearts. So how can we come, how should we come into his presence? There could be no important question than that. No more important question. And so we came to patriarchal worship. And sorry, Tom, I'm not doing so good. There was religious worship. We call that religious worship. And then we come to patriarchal worship where we're moving ahead in our survey through redemptive history that's Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the first thing we looked at in patriarchal worship is the name that is called upon God's name is the means by which he makes himself known to you he says I want you to know me this is my name and God told Adam and Eve his name but remember it's not just about being able to pronounce his name it's about the fullness of that name And so Adam and Eve, though they knew God's name, Yahweh, they didn't know it like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob would know God's name, Yahweh. 
And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't know God's name, Yahweh, like Moses and the Israelites would know his name when he brought them out of Egypt. And Moses and the Israelites did not know God's name like we know his name today in Jesus, who is our Savior and Redeemer. And so God reveals more and more of himself. And as he reveals himself, our worship conforms to what he has told us about himself. That's the basic pattern of worship. We call that the dialogical principle of worship. Remember, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were always building altars. But where did they build altars? Wherever God had revealed himself to them. And so God speaks, we respond. Worship is not us initiating and saying, I will do this for you, God. Worship is us saying, oh, God has spoken. I need to respond appropriately. That is worship. That's why we're here. So temple worship, therefore, this, must be centered around the inscripturated word in which the incarnate word, Jesus, is revealed to us. If our worship is not centered around this word, then our worship is illegitimate. To the extent that our worship is not a response to God's initiative, then our worship is false. And so this is why we spend a a significant portion of our time on Sunday mornings Hearing the word, reading of scripture, the preaching of the word, the reading together of the word at the beginning, and reading afterwards. So then we come to Old Covenant worship. And in Old Covenant worship, we saw four things. Temple worship is fundamentally communal. Remember the firstborn of Israel, represented in the Levites, who represented the whole nation. Remember the high priest with the names of all the tribes on his, on his breastpiece and on his shoulders. Remember how they had to come three times a year, everyone, all the males together, to Jerusalem at the temple. And so it is no longer possible to fulfill your obligation of worship to God. Is worship an option for us? Let's just, simple questions. Is worship an option for us? No. Can we fulfill the obligation of worship apart from the congregation? The answer is no. It's impossible. And so we see that's rooted in the communal nature of worship, old covenant worship. Temple worship is covenantal. Now, I want you to know what that means, right? This is what it means. It means that worship is the formal maintenance of a relationship. That's what it means. Of a covenant relationship between God's people and our covenant Lord. What is worship? Worship is maintaining a relationship as God has told us how to do it. And finally, oh, sec- third, um, remember the Levitical choirs in the Old Covenant. And so we saw that when we sing together, you know, a lot of people say, singing's just not my thing. I like to listen to other people sing. Well, you cannot say that as a Christian in, in the temple. Because you're a member of a choir. Right? You're automatically a, a choir member. And you are a member of a priestly temple 
choir, calling on the name of the Lord and proclaiming the word of the Lord to ourselves. And so we come to sing with all our hearts. And we thank the Lord that he doesn't judge our singing based on how on pitch we are um, or you know, how expert we are at that. If that was the case, probably he wouldn't have allowed us all to be members in his choir. So he's invited us all in. He's called us all in. It's our obligation. Finally, in Old Covenant worship, we saw that, what is a temple? A temple is a house. What is a house? A house is where someone lives. Who lives in the temple? God. He said, it's my house. And so this temple requires that we distinguish between God's omnipresence, God is everywhere at the same time, equally, and yet we also affirm God's special presence. And God's special presence requires, brothers and sisters, that special external worship by which we draw near to where God is. See, there's a sense in which I don't need to draw near to where God is because God's everywhere. There's another sense in which that's false. If we cannot also say, I need to go where God is. I need to go where he is and worship. Which is why you came here, because this is where God is is because he has promised to be here, specially, as he is not anywhere else. Now that's, that's, that's beautiful. That's, that is exciting. So we come to new covenant worship. And the last week we saw that new covenant worship is old. New covenant, new covenant worship is old. It's also new. How is it new? Well, it, it, it's fulfilled. The altar and the sacrifices and the temple and the priesthood, all in Jesus. And because we're all connected with Jesus, we are all regenerate worshipers now, worshiping in spirit and in truth. That's the, that's the newness of new covenant worship. All right. But it's also old because temple worship must be shaped still by the theology of worship we got from the Old Testament. The New Testament doesn't give us more theology of worship. We got all our needed theology in the Old Testament. It's just affirmed in the New Testament. So we still have to live our New Testament worship out in light of our Old Covenant, the theology we got. And then we looked last week at the parts of worship. And what are the parts of worship that the Bible gives us? The Lord's Supper. And remember, the Lord's Supper is God's word to us. And then we respond in the Lord's Supper um, in the giving of thanks. Baptism, uh, which we talked about obviously is not every week, obviously. Um, But baptism is God's visual word to us. And we respond Um, Peter, Paul says, Ananias says, and Peter, by calling on God's name in baptism. So there's the dialogue there. Um, What do we have next? The reading of the word and the preaching of the word. We can go to the next one, prayer. The next one, congregational singing. And finally, kind of a little subset or part of all that, 
uh, the congregational amen. And boy, what a blessing the amen was last week. That, that was just, just beautiful. It, it was beautiful. Now, in that list, is there anything that you feel like is missing? Don't answer out loud, that's fine. But is there something you feel like is missing from the list? And uh, um, I, I was talking to someone this morning, so I want you to know we're going we're gonna to talk about one anothering, and we're going to talk about offering. So those two things are coming later. We're going to discuss those things. Um, but I'm glad, of, hopefully, you ha- asked that question and you're thinking ahead. Now, this morning, we come to gender roles in New Covenant worship. And this is a topic that a lot of times is addressed by opening up to a specific passage of Scripture, exegesis. That's what we're going we're gonna to do that this morning. But we're, we're, we're also going to look at this topic of gender roles in worship in light of our theology of worship that we have just been developing. So, what does a biblical theology of worship tell us about gender roles in worship? How does the Bible's teaching about gender roles and worship, I'm going to turn it around, how does that reinforce our theology of worship? And I want to say this, my, my desire is that we come to see a wonderful goodness and a wonderful beauty in the Bible's answer to those questions. So, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth, When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Now I'm going to say right off the bat that Paul is dealing in this context with a lot of um, revelatory gifts, miraculous sign gifts, uh, special gifts that um, I, we believe as a church are no longer uh, in practice today in the churches. Now, you say, well, how can I say that? Well, I cannot tell you how in just a single moment. But let me talk about, we've been developing a theology of worship. We also need a theology of revelation. Um, and a theology of revelation, which you have to go back and develop that by going primeval, Revelation, patriarchal revelation, old covenant revelation, new covenant revelation. In order to get a theology of revelation, you've got to do what we just did with worship. And you have to do the same thing. And then you learn and you begin to see, when I might have a theology of revelation, you understand the role that speaking in tongues and prophecy played in the early infant New Testament church. And you begin to understand why that was confined to that initial period. But a lot of times we're just not, we don't want to do theology of Revelation. And so it's, it's too difficult. Um, but that, that's another thing. So I'm going to pretend that it, all that's answered. And here we go. 1 Corinthians 14. 
What did you see in 1 Corinthians 14 with regard to the theology of worship? We see the communal nature of worship. See where it's communal? When you what? When you assemble. So there's the communal nature of worship. We also see the dialogical nature of worship. Notice how every ingredient in that list is either God speaking to us or us speaking to God. There's no me, there's no us having conversation and fellowship with each other in terms of that. Um, so, teachings and revelations. That's God's word to his people, right? What about tongues? Well, and the interpretation of tongues. Well, if they're Holy Spirit-inspired utterances, if God is actually inspiring those utterances, that's God's word to his people too, even if it's in the form of a prayer. Uh, what about Psalms? Well, the Psalms, if we're talking about the Psalms in the Old Testament, those are God's word to us. And if we're talking about brand new, Spirit-inspired songs in the moment when they were assembled, that's also God's word. So in all those categories, we see God speaking to his people. At the same time, psalms and tongues may be prayers that God's people offer to him. Responding to his word, right? So you see this, this pattern of worship. Uh, In the Old Testament psalms, many of them were prayers. Luke tells us that Cornelius and all who were with him were speaking with tongues... And exalting God. I just want to say, why was speaking in tongues so important in the early church? Well, what happened at Babel? God confused everyone's tongues. Because they were wicked, and if they all got together, the bounds of their wickedness, there would be none. So God confused all their tongues. So if anyone is worried about the evil world banding together in this unified one world government that's just unified, rest assured the Bible does not teach that and it will not happen because God confused everyone's tongues so that they wouldn't all agree or work together anymore. So God confused the tongues so that they would be scattered and not get along. What was the only way to bring the tongues and the nations back together? In the church. In the church, we have people from every nation, tongue, tribe, and people gathered in one nation, one people. But no longer is this the Tower of Babel. Now this is the city of Zion, right? And so what what we have here is the beauty of tongues in the early church was God was, was symbolizing to them because the Jews... You know, they thought the church could only be Jews, right? And now God says, no, no. And to show that, I'm going to have you all speaking in tongues. The language is, you're going to pray to me in the language of the people you once hated. You're going to pray to me and exalt my name in the language of nations that once hated and persecuted you. And so by, by this whole thing of speaking in tongues, God God communicated to this infant church the, 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 the beauty of his, his church being universal. And once the church was established, once the church had taken root, and the worldwide nature of the church was established, there's no need for tongues anymore. 
particularly revelatory tongues. Because once the gospel had been clearly conveyed, you didn't need prophets in every church to help make that gospel clear. Um, So that's a bit of the theology of worship. I'm going afield, but I I hope that might be helpful. Maybe you've had questions about that. Um, So where was I? So what does, Paul, Paul also speaks of praying in a tongue, blessing God in a tongue, giving thanks in a tongue. So what does this communal and dialogical nature of worship mean in your handout for the roles of men and women in temple worship? Now I'm going to spell it out at the beginning and then we're going to look at where the Bible teaches this and where, and where it's beautiful. It means that if a person contributes individually in temple worship. Every word there is important. It is right that this person should be a man. Since he is now speaking to And teaching and admonishing the assembly with the word of Christ. Whether it's in singing a song or speaking out loud in some other way. He's either doing that or, and or, he is now leading the gathered assembly in prayer. Calling upon the name of the Lord. What is worship? What is it? It's dialogical. It's dialogical. We're either praying or God is speaking. In light of that, it's appropriate that an individual contribution in that context should come from a man. Paul gives expression to this reality uh, just a few verses later in the same chapter, 1 Corinthians 14. He says, The women are to keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. Now, in my notes, and in they can see in the back, I X'd out a huge section here. It's on the back of your handout. I was going to go through it here. I've decided not to, since it is on the back of your handout. There are many ways that people have suggested to get around what I believe is the explicit and clear teaching of that verse. Um, I've tried to deal with them on the back page of your handout. So assuming I've dealt with it, let me ask you this question. What is the speaking that Paul is referring to? when he says women are not permitted to speak. Is he saying that a woman cannot join in the congregational amen at the end? Is he saying that a woman cannot join in congregational singing? Is he saying women cannot participate with the men in a responsive reading? Well, I want to, I mean, the, the answer is no. In context, in context, Paul is referring to any 
individual speaking, singing, speaking, verbal contribution, individual. In verse 26, what did Paul say? When you assemble, each one, it's very individual, has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Now then, Paul singles out tongues and prophecies for some special treatment. Notice what he does. He says, if anyone speaks, laleo, in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn. And one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent, sigao, in the church. Silent in the church. Now he's talking about tongue speakers there. Next he says, let two or three prophets speak, laleo, and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent, sigao. Now, then Paul continues. The women are to keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, sigao, laleo. When Paul says that, in context, he's referring to any individual speaking contribution, such as prophecy, or a tongue, or a teaching, or a psalm. I want to point out that in the book, there will be a lengthy note on 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which relates to this point that we're talking about. Now, Paul continues in verse 35. Now, I, I want to say, I just want to say this. At this point, I'm just trying to teach. I'm just trying to say, what does the Bible say? In a moment, we're going to transition to, why is this so amazingly beautiful? So, we'll come to that. Paul continues in verse 35. If they, the women, desire to learn anything, and I'm just going to say, I, I wish, I want to take the time to do it here, um, but I just, I don't want to do it. I, I, you can read it. But there are some who would refer this, this is to only wives. So, only wives are not supposed to speak in church. But if you're not married, you can. Um, that, I'm getting off on it, but that view says that the reason a wife shouldn't speak in church because if she does, she's embarrassing her husband. That's the word I've seen used in very scholarly commentaries. Um, she's, uh, she's shaming her husband. But as we'll see, that is patently false. The, the point is not shaming her husband. The point is shaming herself. And, again, we'll see that. There's more on the back of your handout. Also, also one of the points there is they say that, well, Paul is just talking about a, a wife. Everyone else can, but only wives cannot examine prophecies. So there was this gift, like if, I, if, if, if Mark stood up and I have a prophecy, I have a revelation from God, I'm going to share it with you, I'm going to prophesy. 
There will be others in the body who have the gift of discerning spirits. The word is judging. Judging. Diacrisis, diacrino. Judge. So the others would judge Mark's prophecy to determine if it was a, he was a true prophet and it was a true prophecy. And so what these commentators say is that when Paul says a woman, if, if the woman, if a woman has a, wants to learn anything, she should ask her husband at home, they say that he's talking about, when he says she should ask her husband, they say he's saying that they shouldn't be judging Mark's, a woman should not judge Mark's prophecy. Uh, I, I just have to say that learning and judging, learning by asking a question, learning by asking a question, and judging and determining and passing judgment, even if it's by asking a question, are two, I can't put them in enough different universes. So, so that is a council of despair. Um, there's other problems with that. I, I just want to say, I just want to say, I, am, I, I, I want to be careful. I want to deal with the other interpretations. And I've tried to be faithful in that, but I don't have time to go through them all here. The teaching of Paul is clear, I believe, in context. So, Paul says, If they, the women, desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Shameful is the true and best translation of that Greek word. Um... That's what a number of translations have. We know that Paul assumed, okay, let's just put this together. Paul assumed the women would be learning everything the men were learning in church. Let's just be clear about that. There's nothing that happens in church that a man learns that the woman cannot learn and will not learn at the same time. Nothing. So what's the point? Why does Paul say if a woman desires to learn anything? Is he saying, he's not, if he's not saying that women cannot learn, they can't learn anything at church, only men can learn things at church, he's not saying that. So what's he saying? He's saying this. If the women desire to learn anything additional, something not already being revealed, not already being taught, or let's say if the women are desiring clarification on something that's been taught, Well, let them ask their own husbands at home. And if their husbands don't know the answer, Paul is not assuming that their husband... Every husband is automatically going to know every question that his wife asks him. Right? He's not saying that. But we come to Paul with our our twisted, culturally perverted ideas. And we filter the Bible through it. And so we reject what the Bible says. We must find ways around it. This is what people do. I have bunches of commentaries on my shelf that twist and twist and twist this passage to make it say what they want it to say. So Paul is not saying that every man will know the answer. He's just saying, here's the general pattern. If you, if you don't know, and he's not assuming that they won't know, a woman might know and maybe her husband doesn't know. Well, I don't know. 
But if you don't know, try your husband at home. Right? That's just like, if you don't know, try your husband when you get home. And if he doesn't know, Paul wasn't worried about people like us. He just wasn't worried about us. But we can fill in the blank. He's saying, if your husband doesn't know, well, go ask the pastor. Right? Go ask one of the elders. Or maybe one of your lady friends. Right? Maybe one of your good friends is a woman knows the answer to the question. Just don't be asking your questions in the temple worship. The point is not, then, that women were less intelligent than men. Obviously. And neither is the point that women were less educated. I have heard that. That's another way people find around this. So they say, well, Paul had to say that because women weren't educated enough. So that educated, less educated people should not be asking questions. How does that even make sense? You would think it would be the less educated who don't have the understanding who should ask the questions because they don't understand. So this thing, well, now we're educated so we can speak in church, that does not make sense. So you see the ways that people seek around this. The point is this, that since temple worship is fundamentally communal, Okay? When, when, when you speak individually, you cannot escape the communal context of it. We are worshiping now in bonds together. So any individual contribution partakes of an intrinsically communal nature. Therefore, to speak individually in temple worship, even in the asking of questions is to take a leading role in temple worship. It is essentially to take part in determining the direction of temple worship. This is why, after saying that Paul says that he wants the men in every place that's in the church, I want the men in every place to pray... Then he goes on to say, a woman must learn quietly. Now, right now, every man in this room is learning quietly. Okay. So the point is not only that women learn quietly and men learn loudly, or men learn by talking only, right? All the men and all the women at this moment are learning quietly. But a woman, when it comes to individual contributions in the assembly, she must learn quietly all the time. With entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. But then he says, the, not only does he say that, he says the opposite, but... In every place to remain quiet. So the point is not just teaching and authority. The point is that's the only thing that happens here. Any individual contribution is about teaching and authority. 
That's, that's by its very nature what should happen in worship. So because that's by its very nature what happens in worship, therefore in temple worship, therefore in temple worship, the woman must remain quiet. I think I said, I don't know if the next thing is in your handout, but I already said it. So I just want to say this now. We're going to shift gears to beauty. But I want to say this. Here's my question. If the Bible teaches this, if the Bible teaches it, is that good enough for us? Is it good enough? At the end of the day, our our beliefs about biblical authority are maybe not what they, they seem. Um, I was saying to my family at the table this morning, and, uh, you know, there's the issue of head coverings. Believe me, I'm not preaching that head coverings are required. If I were, I would keep that a secret. Or if I believe that, I would keep it a secret right now. But I want to say this, that if head coverings, if, Paul, if, Paul, if we should wear, if women should wear head coverings, if the Bible said that, is that enough? Or do we already know, since that is stupid in our culture, that that cannot be what Paul taught? Do I already know, because that is ridiculous in the 21st century, therefore, that cannot be what Paul is saying? I would suggest that in various ways, every single one of us in this room, at, at some level, lacks a true submission to the absolute authority of God's word. So, let me ask now, where is the goodness and the beauty in these things? In other words, upon what basis does Paul give this instruction? Did, did this just come out of nowhere? Did Paul just be like, okay, new teaching, Did it, did it originate with Paul? Well, what does Paul say? He says, in the churches, the women are not permitted to speak individually, but are to subject themselves, and then keywords, just as the law also says. Now, that makes some of us uncomfortable, right? Because the law is in which testament? That's the Old Testament. And we don't base our New Testament practice on the Old Testament, right? Well, I, I hope that's not the way we think. But the law refers not to the Ten Commandments. There's no, there's no one of the Ten Commandments that says women shall not speak in church. So what does the law refer to? It refers to the presentation in the books of the law, Genesis to Deuteronomy, of the differing roles of men and women. So we read in Genesis chapter 2, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. 
I just want to point out that was not the woman's role. The woman's role was not to work the garden or keep it. This unique role and responsibility of the man in working and keeping the garden, and we see that in the curse. The curse deals with Adam's working of the ground. Um, So this unique role of the man in working and keeping the garden is the distinct glory of the man. That's our, that's our glory, brothers. A glory given to us. A glory we can waste. But it's our glory by virtue of being male. Men. On the other hand, the unique role and responsibility of the woman was to be a helper to her husband. Enabling him to succeed in his God-given task. It's not good for the man to be alone. And related to that role of helper, to bear and raise children. Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. 1 Timothy 2.15. But women will be saved. The word is saved, and it should be translated saved. It could be preserved. It can be translated that. But Paul's thinking of final salvation. How do we come to final salvation? Through living faithfully in our God, God-ordained roles in the present. So what's the God-ordained role in general of a woman? It is the bearing and raising of children. And they will be saved through the bearing and raising of children as they engage in their responsibilities in life in faith, love, and sanctity with self-restraint. That's why he says women will be saved through this. And so this unique role and responsibility of the woman is the distinct glory of the woman. Now, I, I want to I say something in a moment, um, but first. These respective roles of male and female constitute their glory. And, and this glory, if, if you're... The fact is... Um, uh, a 10-year-old girl, this is her glory. She may not be married and raising children. But this, is the, this communicates to us the beauty of femininity, of, of womanhood. This communicates, again, you, you could have a 10-year-old boy. He's not a father. He's not, he's not got a job yet providing for a family. But this is nevertheless, ultimately, his glory as male. And, and, and in terms of what masculinity means. And so, even if you could have, let, let's take it further on. If you're, if you're retired, or if, you're no, if all your children are moved out of the house, do, are you no longer, do you no longer have a glory? No. The glory of woman, it, it's, it's something deeper. But we see that glory, most, uh, we see that glory as a general rule, expressed in these distinct roles, okay? So, but the roles go deeper. They, they reveal a glory that's deeper, whether we're able... So if you have a man who's unable to provide for a family and have a, and have a job, does that mean he's a loser man? No. He's still, he still has the glory of being a man. 
And that the glory that he has is not something for us to define as we want. It's defined according to what God says it is. And as it's most often manifested in working and keeping. Okay. So, I, now then, in that light. These respective roles of male and female constitute their glory because they are grounded in the unique ways that they were each created by God. I mean, are we complaining that God created us? Are we complaining how he created us? I hope not. Because he created us both, male and female, in his image and likeness, Adam from the ground, Eve from Adam's side. The point here, then, is the basic distinction of roles, the glory of the man and the glory of the woman, which is rooted in the creation order. Now, Adam's responsibility to work and keep the garden, here's where it gets really important. It was not just a matter of providing for his wife and children. Adam, you have the job of working and keeping the garden and providing for your wife and children. That's not all that it was. It represented his priestly calling. The garden in in Genesis is described in terms of a temple. So when you went into the Garden of Eden, you you were in a temple. There's, there's books you can buy on that topic. We could preach on it, but it's beautiful. Um, the, the Garden of Eden was the first temple. It was the place of God's special presence with men, with Adam and Eve. And the language of working and keeping the garden is the same language used to describe the Levite's job at the tabernacle. So what was Adam supposed to do in the temple in Eden? Work it and keep it. What were the Levites supposed to do in the tabernacle? Work it and keep it. Numbers chapter 3. They shall keep the responsibility. It's basically keep the keeping. They shall keep the responsibility for Aaron and for the whole congregation before the tent of meeting to work the service of the tabernacle. Keep and work. They shall also keep all the furnishings of the tent of meeting, along with the responsibilities of the sons of Israel, to work the service of the tabernacle. Numbers 18. They shall be joined with you and keep the responsibility of the tent of meeting for all the work of the tent. But an outsider may not come near you, so you shall keep the responsibility of the sanctuary. Just like Adam was supposed to keep the responsibility of the Eden temple. And the responsibility of the altar. So that there will no longer be wrath on the sons of Israel. Behold, I myself have taken your fellow Levites from among the sons of Israel. They are a gift to you dedicated to the Lord to work the service for the tent of meeting. Just like Adam worked the garden temple in Eden. For you and your sons with you shall keep your priesthood for everything concerning the altar and inside the veil, and you are to work the service. Now remember, the first temple in the garden, it did not have animal sacrifices. It didn't have an altar. It didn't have the blood atonement because there had been no fall. But it was still a temple because it was still the special place where God came and walked with Adam and Eve. And Adam 
was, it was uniquely to, in your handout, the man that God assigned the priestly task. It wasn't just, God just wasn't saying, okay, man, your job is to provide for your family. He was saying, man, your job is to keep this temple. Your job is to guard this temple, to cultivate this temple, to work it. The Garden of Eden. And that word for keeping means guarding. It means to watch over. So what was Adam's job? Watch over my temple. Don't let anyone in who shouldn't be in here. And so when the serpent came, who did the serpent address himself to? He addressed himself to the woman. Not because the woman was, was not as smart as Adam. That's not the point. The, and, and I know it, Paul talks about her being deceived. But, the, but again, the point isn't she was less intelligent. The point is that the serpent knew that it was Adam's job. He was the priestly role. So I'm not going to go to Adam, I'm going to go to Eve. That also then explains why when God came, who did God go to? He did not go to Eve, he went to Adam. He, who hid? Adam and Eve both hid themselves. Who ate first? Eve ate first. But when they both hid, who did God call to? He called to the man first. Because he was the one he entrusted with that priestly responsibility. So it's uniquely to the man. God assigned the priestly task of working and keeping the garden temple. Likewise, it was uniquely to the Levitical males that God assigned the task of working and keeping the tabernacle. I think a lot of times we can look at the Old Testament and think, well, God, God said it was only the males who should be working and keeping the tabernacle because um, that was their culture. But no, that was rooted in creation. It was rooted in creation. This is, let me just say it, this is the glory of the man. By virtue of his creation and the creation order. The glory of the woman is a different glory. And it is by virtue of her creation and the creation order that her glory is different. And her glory, together with the glory of the man, ought to be extolled and honored. We, we ought to stand in amazement at each other's glories. And in fact, the glory of the man is seen the most clearly in its contrast with the glory of the woman. You will never appreciate the glory of the man more than when you see it in its contrast with the glory of the woman. And you will never appreciate and love the glory of the woman more than when you see that glory in its contrast with the glory of the man. Now, we all know where we stand on transgenderism. But our discomfort, any discomfort we have with this teaching here, is the very discomfort that leads consistently to transgenderism. 
we have, we have given away. We have compromised when it comes to the glory, the distinctive glories of male and female. It's upon this basis, watch this now, it is upon this basis, the priestly role of man in the garden temple and his priestly role in the subsequent old covenant temple worship. It's on that basis that Paul says women are not to speak in new covenant temple worship, but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. Last point, it's on the last page of your handout. Some commentators will say, well, a woman's not supposed to subject herself to every man she walks by on the street. Well, no, no. So that's why they say it's only talking to women. And if you're not married, you don't have to subject yourself. But the point here is that fundamental, deeper, underlying role of woman and man. And the subjection to male leadership in the church. So, it's just, uh, we have compromised as a church. We have flat out compromised. And I think if we're not careful, it leads us to not have a voice in speaking to the larger compromises that we see in the culture around us. For a woman to speak in church, Paul says, is shameful. Why? How many of you as women, and I'm, I'm, I, you don't answer this, but how many as women read that and feel like, oh, and I wouldn't, I don't, I'm not blaming you for it. I want you to read that and say, thank you, Paul. Thank you, Paul. And how do you get to say that? Because for a woman to speak in church is shameful Because why? Because this is a denial of her glory. In other words, what Paul is saying is, I don't want to be too vivid here, but the Bible speaks of nakedness as shame. And so obviously, none of us want to be shamed in terms of nakedness. None of us not want to be shamed like that. That, that is our shame in, in that way. It, it's also nothing bad, but it's a shame in terms of nakedness. So when Paul says it is shameful for a woman to speak in church, he's looking out for her own honor. He's looking out for her own glory. He is not speaking of something culturally shameful. This is what some people say. Well, in that culture, it, it was shame to a woman to speak in church. That's not what he's saying. Shameful is a, is a theological and moral shame. As the law also says. And this theological and moral shame of a woman speaking in church is what it is. Why does he call it shame? 
only because it is the negation of the woman's distinct honor and glory rooted in her creation. So let me put it like this. Now, we, we, we know how to do this uh, in terms of transgenderism. But let's just apply this principle here. For a, for a woman to take to herself what is the glory of the man, for a woman to take to herself what is the glory, the distinctive glory of a man, how is that not a, I mean, if you want to use the word embarrassing, how is that not shameful to a woman who is not a man? Let's do it vice versa. And I'm not talking about transgenderism here. Only for a man who is a man to take to himself the distinctive glory of a woman. How is not that shameful to a man? When Paul says a woman is not to speak in church, he is guarding the woman's true glory. And so I long for all of you as women in this room to be able to read this verse and say, thank you, Paul. Thank you, Lord. (laughs) When we come to understand that, we will be able to see the wonderful goodness and beauty of the Bible's teaching regarding gender roles in temple worship. So to summarize, there is no place in temple worship where it is an honorable and fitting thing for a woman to contribute individually. This is so because, going back to our theology of worship, if a woman contributes in temple worship, her contribution has, or it should have, the nature of a proclamation of God's authoritative word, teaching and admonishing, or a leading of the congregation in responding to that authoritative word. That's calling upon the name of the Lord, prayer, or both. That is the nature of everything that happens in temple worship. And so here we see that this specific conclusion regarding the role of women in temple worship and the role of men in temple worship is grounded in and helps us to further clarify and even further informs a biblical theology of worship. So now let me ask again this question, which we've come, come at at different angles. What, what extent, to what extent do you think that our interpretation of Scripture, of this, this book, is colored and even determined by the culture around us? To what extent have we at Living Word 
you and me as individuals, been even subtly infected with the cultural assumptions of, of our day. Let me put it this way. Let's say, even if we believe, and I'm guessing we all believe here in this room, that a woman can't preach from the pulpit on Sunday morning. See how I really clear? I, I want to make sure I got full agreement, I think. A woman can't preach from the pulpit on Sunday morning. Let me ask, is that really the extent of what you believe on that subject? That a woman can't preach. Is it really the extent of what you believe? Of what I believe? Because if it is, then it should be obvious why we so quickly revolt against other related teachings of Scripture. Why do we revolt against a woman should not speak in church? I believe it's because we believe a woman can't preach. Why, are, why do we have a problem with a woman not speaking in church? I think it's because we believe a woman can't preach. And that's all we believe. All we see is an ugly can't. And if we are unable to see any beauty in what we confess to believe, so we confess to believe a woman shouldn't preach, but if we do not see any beauty in that, you will always be more susceptible and I will always be more susceptible to compromise, to discontent and resentment, or to legalistic pride. So I'll ask you this. What do you believe? What are all your beliefs? How beautiful are each one of those beliefs to you? How good? As we humbly submit ourselves to the truths of God's word, let us always pray that he will reveal to us the goodness and the beauty of those truths that we confess. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you together for your word. We thank you for its teaching. And we thank you for male and the glory of the man. Thank you for the beauty of that glory of the man. And we thank you for female and the glory of the woman and the beauty of that glory of the woman. May we in the church of all places affirm and celebrate to the fullest those glories. And may we not willingly walk about naked. May we may we not take to ourselves 
the distinct glory of the other. And so in the process, shame ourselves and dishonor your name. Lord, we pray that we see in this always goodness and beauty, but I also pray that we have such an attitude of humility and submission before your word and, and knowing that the one who gave us that word is himself good and beautiful. So that even if we can't quite grasp the goodness and the beauty in every teaching, we work at it, but until we get there, we always know and believe that the one who has given us these instructions is infinitely good and infinitely beautiful. Watch over this church, we pray, and all of your churches everywhere. And and, uh, we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.